with cameras worrying, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders will meet with President Biden tomorrow. Their topic, what else but the debt ceiling impasse? For more on this and other congressional matters affecting you, here's WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Does anyone have any hopes for that meeting that some sort of equilibrium can be achieved and will avoid disaster? Well, everybody's hopes are all poured into this meeting, maybe too much so, because nothing really happened over the past week other than a lot of finger pointing related to the Democrats and the Republicans about who's to blame for getting us closer and closer to this deadline, which, depending on who you listen to, could be as early as June 1st. Uh, We heard some testimony at a congressional hearing last week. It might be a little bit later, maybe June 8th, but it could also push farther into the week, uh, farther into the summer. But at any rate, all eyes, of course, are going to be on this meeting tomorrow. And really, who is going to blink first on this? Is it going to be President Biden still sticking with his position that he will not deal in any way, shape or form with cutting things just to raise the debt ceiling? Or will House uh, Speaker McCarthy stick to his guns and to all the uh, wants and needs of his conservative wing of the party that say, no, we've got to use this this leverage right now to get these cuts, because if we don't, it's not going to happen. And what's surprising is the absence of the Senate minority leader, Mitchell McConnell, who is he still fully there? I mean, a fall that was pretty severe, someone his age, is he got the capacity to do this because he's been pretty self-effacing in this particular situation? Right. It's really interesting in connection with that. I, I mean, he, he seems fine after coming back from uh, having that fall a little while ago, but unlike in past Past years when a lot of Republicans, frankly, on the Senate side looked to McConnell and when he was majority leader as well as kind of this senator coming in on the white knight horse, you know, to come in and rescue the day that he was always calm as as the deadline approached. But this time, this past week, he made it very clear that he is not going to get involved. He said, look, we've had divided government many times before. He said, I'm not part of this right now. This is all about President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So he's really backing McCarthy and just letting him take the reins. Now, a lot of Republicans privately are a little nervous about that because, as you know, that House Republican conference can get very unwieldy and things can change pretty fast. But right now, uh, the House Speaker, he won that legislative uh, debate. They got their bill passed, even though it's really a messaging bill at this point. But it does provide leverage going into this big meeting on Tuesday. And some members have been talking about the actual effect effects for various federal agencies that this shutdown or this lapse in funding, the debt ceiling limit default would have. Right. And one of the biggest ones is related to veterans. Uh, Democrats have really been hammering home saying that if this legislation were to go forward or if the Republican proposals would move ahead, that effectively it would cut uh, federal funding for veterans by more than 20 percent. Now, Republicans are pushing back hard on this. And in their legislation, there's no specific numbers to say what is going to be cut. And that's, of course, a strategic decision by Republicans. But you have the head of the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, saying that this is going to lead to cuts. There's going to be uh, lower services, reduced telehealth access, uh, a loss of jobs potentially. And because of that, more than 50 House Republicans signed a letter to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, 
for basically pushing back on all that the Veterans Department has been saying and saying, wait a second, we're not we're not cutting anything at this point. And they're trying to say that they are not going to cut anything. This was a group led by Virginia Congresswoman Jen Kiggins, who's a Navy veteran. And they're really trying to push back on that because they know this could be a damaging political message for them. So then it's basically wait and see what happens after that meeting and whether they come out smiling or glaring at one another. Right. And I think, you know, obviously both sides are going to be posturing. Both sides are trying to say we're winning this battle one way or another. So what they're really looking for privately is a way that both of them can come out of that meeting with the smiles and say, look, I'm doing exactly what my Republican conference is doing or wants. Or on the other side, President Biden and Democrats can say, yep, we got exactly what we wanted. And uh, that's a tough line to uh, get to because there's a lot at stake here, as you know. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And then there's the issue of Senator Tommy Tuberville. He's holding up military promotions and they're starting to back up visibly over something in the military he doesn't like. Right. And this is something that is really troubling to a lot of people on Capitol Hill. Um, Senator Tuberville is frustrating both military leaders, Democratic senators, uh, a lot of staffers behind the scenes. Uh, With this hold on military promotions for general and flag officers, this has been going on now for about two months. Tuberville has said he will not drop his objection until the military pulls back on a defense policy it announced last year, which would provide leave time and stipends for troops and qualified family members to travel across state lines to receive abortion services. And that's his real complaint about this. Now, a lot of people on the Republican side say there's nothing wrong with him having this complaint and he should be able to issue it. But the military is really getting nervous about this because they actually have some three and four star military officers who are waiting to get uh, their final approval. And this includes someone in the uh, the head of the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, the head of the Seventh Fleet in the Pacific. You also have the next director of intelligence at the U.S. Cyber Command. And it's really unclear how this is going to be resolved. Former defense secretaries last week tried to add to some pressure that have served under Republicans and Democrats. Uh, They sent a letter basically saying that the military should not be made political pawns in this process. Yeah, so brinksmanship is happening pretty much everywhere you look these days. It is. And what is the reaction to the Hill on the return to the office, telework, new work environment? There's a lot of words for it. That guidance that came from the Office of Management and Budget, the White House, which I wrote a column, if you can understand the memo, then you might be able to help start to carry it out. But that's really kind of stuck, too, isn't it? Right. And as you pointed out, I mean, there's really a lot of confusion about what the memo actually means specifically to agencies and for all these people who are trying to figure out whether or not they are going to have X amount of days teleworking or going back to the offices. Uh, And, you know, as you have noted, uh, they have tried to figure out within each of these agencies what this actually means. I mean, the memo, it seems, is trying to say... We need to have something of a reset here after the pandemic, and we make sure that everything is being done correctly, but also responding to what basically our customers or the people that rely on these agencies need. And it seems like every agency is trying to work its way through all of this. You know, I was struck by the Federal News Network survey that found that close to two-thirds who responded said they would look for a new job if their agency decided to increase work at the office. Well, you also have a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill who uh, would like 
there to be a nice balance between telework and working at the office, but also a lot of, that are pushing, uh, particularly Republicans, to get people back into the office. So it's a really interesting back and forth related to this issue. And meanwhile, the Capitol Hill itself is open and there are more accessible areas thanks to the Republicans taking over the House. What's it look like these days up there? We're post-cherry blossom time. <laughs> we are post-cherry blossom time, but you would never know it. I have not seen this many people, kids, big tour groups, all kinds of organizations on the Hill. I have not seen this in several years, you know, going back to uh, the pandemic, of course, and then you had all the security issues related to January 6th. And as we've talked about in the past, uh, lawmakers like to see people. They like to see their constituents coming up to the Hill. So it's been really nice to come into the Capitol every day and see all of these people, uh, not only on the outside of the Capitol, but working through the visitor center and going through the corridors. And then what's really interesting is just across the hall from me is the balcony, the visitor's balcony to the House chamber. Well, for a long time, that's been all locked off. Even when members of Congress would come up with groups, they could not actually look into the chamber. And of course, that's a big deal when you come to the Capitol. Now those doors are open. They can get groups down there to actually look at where the work is either taking place or not taking place, depending on the day. And it's really nice to see. All right. I may play tourist and show up at your door one of these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on up. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much, as always. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama 
and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that 
I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.